Revolutions don't actually have a very good record in the last uh, couple of hundred years and therefore it was with some um, hesitation that I gave the title The Revolutions here to our series in Luke. After all, the French Revolution produced uh, bloodshed that shocked Europe. The Russian Revolution gave us Stalin and the pogroms. The Iranian Revolution produced the Ayatollahs. Revolutionary language doesn't actually tend to attract itself to most of us, or at least to to those of us who know our history. And uh, frankly, it was the same in the first century. The Roman world was littered with uprisings, with attempted revolutions. There were some who got excited about such things. But uh, the majority of people knew that those revolutions were... um, always terribly destructive, brutally put down by the Romans and not a very good idea. Theophilus in particular, the man whom Luke addresses this Gospel to, whom we met last week, would undoubtedly not have been a fan of revolution. He was a respected Roman citizen. The idea of revolution had no uh, place in, um, in his hopes. So imagine his unease back in chapter 1 when he read Mary's song of delight as she discovers that she's going to be the mother of Jesus because she describes what Jesus is going to do, what God has done in revolutionary terms. God is perfor- performing mighty deeds with his arms. Uh, With his arms, she says, he brings down rulers from their thrones, he scatters people. Revolutionary talk, dangerous talk. May have stirred up a few Jewish hotheads in the first century Palestine, but it and it may stir up some religious hotheads today. But frankly, the Theophiluses of this world are rightly are nervous of revolutionary talk. Luke then knows he has to explain what Mary meant. And he does it by, uh, or he begins to do it at least, by describing the birth of Jesus. He does it by portraying this birth from three different perspectives that we are going to look at this morning as uh, the revolution arrives. The first perspective we're going to look at is the world's perspective. The second perspective we are going to look at is heaven's perspective. And the third perspective we're going to look at um, rather too briefly is the perspective of God's people as this revolution that Mary has spoken about begins to hove into view. First then, the perspective of the world on this revolution. Caesar Augustus is the ruler according to the world. In those days Caesar Augustus, verse 1, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to register. 
A simple decree from Caesar and the whole world does his bidding. Actually, there is a problem with these verses that we must just give a little bit of attention to before we get back to this main point. Because Matthew in his Gospel and elsewhere um, uh, it's insisted that uh, Jesus was born under Herod the Great and Herod the Great died in 4 BC. But um, uh, Quirinius only began to be governor in Syria in 6 AD, ten years later. Understandably, sceptics have uh, leapt on this as evidence that uh, uh, Luke or Matthew or perhaps both of them are inaccurate. Even my children get, uh, have had um, uh, Christmas lessons from their uh, secondary school teachers trying to persuade them how inaccurate Luke is. But I think we need to hesitate just before we jump to, uh, to such conclusions. Firstly, I think we need to note that uh, uh, in passage after passage in Luke's Gospel, we, uh, uh, and actually particularly in his second book, the, the book of Acts, on investigation it is found, it can be shown that Luke is scrupulously accurate as a historian. Um, are you going to do something about that, James, in a few weeks' time? 29th of, of, of October in the evenings, uh, uh, in the evening, James, James is gonna, going to talk about that. Luke is a very, very good historian and therefore we need to, simply on historical grounds, to take Luke's assertions with great seriousness. We don't um, either know what um, this man Quirinius was doing in 4 BC, ten years before he was uh, uh, appointed as governor in Sir- Syria. His um, epitaph says that during that period he was active in the eastern Mediterranean. We also know that he was a trusted friend of the emperor at that time and it's not at all inconceivable that Quirinius may have had an earlier role in, uh, in this area, long actually before he was finally formally appointed as governor. Luke actually doesn't say he was governor of Syria, he says he was governing in Syria. A much more vague word associated with having some uh, form of oversight which Luke doesn't uh, absolutely um, uh, specify. And we must also be be very clear that um, our other historical records of that era are very, very uh, uh, weak and scanty. We just have big gaps in our knowledge. Notice as well in verse 2, Luke says this was the first census that took place while Quirinia was governor of uh, Syria. It's interesting that he should say the first census. We only know actually of one uh, census in the rest of the historical records, one that he started in 6 AD, ten years later, and which caused massive uproar. Luke knows all about that. He describes it simply as the census in Acts chapter 5. And maybe Luke is saying to us specifically this was the first census to distinguish it from that better known census. Maybe, uh, in fact, as it happened all over the place elsewhere. 
um, the Romans started trying to gather some census information in that area um, in a rather faltering way and that is what uh, we are uh, reading about in Luke chapter 2. But then uh, it was only when Quirinius was uh, properly appointed as governor that he really got that show on the road and caused uh, massive unrest. In Gaul at that time it took 40 years to do a census. Ten years was nothing in the Roman world. Don't um, um, be too ready then to jump to uh, uh, the tune of other people who say there are these terrible inconsistencies in the Bible. It needs a little careful investigation and there is no reason on this why uh, Luke should not be recording for us accurately some history. But that's not Luke's main point. No doubt that's why he doesn't bother to... um, uh, to spend lots and lots of time on, uh, uh, on explaining Quirinius' career in uh, detail. He simply, in these first three verses of chapter 2, wants to portray a picture of effortless imperial power. Caesar, Augustus, gives passes a decree. Quirinius implements it and of course, says Luke, everyone goes to his own hometown to register. More than that, actually Luke doesn't want us to miss how insignificant, powerless and even despised this little family is. They go up in um, verse 4 from Nazareth in Galilee, a despised backwater and uh, pregnant Mary, says Luke, is not even married yet, verse 5. He went there, that's Joseph, to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This um, revolutionary child that Mary had sung about just a few uh, um, uh, months before was going to be born into dishonour. It may not be much of a stigma today to um, uh, uh, be born out of wedlock, but it certainly was in Luke's day. And when he was born, he wasn't going to be given any special treatment. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. He was just swaddled in cloths. Most poignant of all, they couldn't even find a cradle for him. Only uh, an animal's food trough. Actually, the picture that nearly all of us have in our mind of uh, this sort of knocking on the door of the inn and the nasty innkeeper, usually a small child dressed in a tablecloth, coming and saying, no, there's no room here, um, doesn't, doesn't uh, really fit um, what, what probably happened. In a tiny little um, uh, village like, uh, like Bethlehem was, they're not going to have a, um, uh, a hotel, a, uh, a big four pillars hotel or something. Um, there, there would have been simply a, a custom that people stayed with local residents in the village. Since they were Joseph, Joseph's uh, relatives, it may well be that he came to stay with the extended family. And um, this word in often, um, uh, to be honest, even usually in the first century, was used 
simply of, of the sleeping accommodation in a house. The upper room that Jesus went into with his disciples was, uh, had, this, had exactly the same name. So what um, Luke is saying is that there was no room in the sleeping accommodation. A little uh, poor houses would have uh, downstairs had a sort of communal area where cooking happened and where the animals were kept. So uh, um, this is where Mary gives birth to her child. Actually, Luke may just hint of, uh, of something of the stigma that Mary had as uh, the time for her birth came, came uh, uh, close because uh, it doesn't quite say there was no room for her. It says there was no place for her. It's extremely unlikely that uh, any family with a bit of common decency would have denied a pregnant woman who was about to give birth one of the uh, few beds in the house, even if it was a bit overcrowded, unless, in fact, they had a bit of agenda against her. There's no place for you, Mary. You're not even married. It brings shame on us to even have you under our roof, let alone up in our bedroom. You can stay down here with the animals, Mary. That's how Jesus was born. Apparently, absolutely helpless in the real world of power and politics. Move from place to place like a little piece of flotsam. Despised and rejected. Placed amongst uh, farm animals. And it wasn't going to get any better. Later in his life he did cause a bit of a stir and effortlessly he was arrested by a cohort of religious police with the um, supreme arrogance the local Roman governor condemned him to death. He was mocked, beaten, crucified by mindlessly violent soldiers. He was abused, berated, mocked by a crowd and left alone to die. So much for the revolutionary. But you see, that was God's plan. Luke has uh, indicated that to us. Joseph was of the house and line of David. Well, that was the line from which the promised Messiah would come, the great Saviour that Israel looked for. Looked for. As they are moved by Augustus down towards Bethlehem, we cannot help but remember how the prophets of old predicted that this Messiah would be born in just that little village, Bethlehem. God is in control. That is how God is going to do his revolutionary work. The world will think it's in control, will appear to be in control, will actually despise him. And yet he will be winning his victories. Through them. 
and uh, Jesus invited in his lifetime people to join him precisely in that revolution. In chapter 9 of his Gospel, for instance, Luke records how a man promised Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He only managed a a manger when he was born. And it hasn't got much better. Will you follow me, he said? Remember, Luke's addressing most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, will you leave your villa to follow this Jesus, says Luke? 21st century young professional person. Will you leave your comfy semi-detached house for a Sudanese Tuchel or a Mongolian yurt or a high-rise flat in London or a shared house in East Oxford for Jesus? Established, middle-class person with your home and your mortgage. Is that home actually a God to you? Or is it just a tool? that happens to be at your stage of life the best way that you can glorify God. And frankly, if there was a better way that you could glorify God, well, you would get rid of it. Because for you is to follow Jesus who had nowhere to lay his head. Or perhaps status is your thing. Perhaps it's being despised by people that you particularly hate. You know, the word evangelical in this world um, is, is like, a, like a ne- an albatross round our necks, isn't it, sometimes? A friend of mine uses it very liberally. was using it um, Friday night. At a, uh, I was having dinner with him. As a, simply as a term, of, a term of abuse. Dark mutterings about fundamentalism and terrorism and oppressive power always seems to accompany that word. And frankly, to be honest, at the moment, evangelical may may have such negative connotations, there may be better ways to describe being a Christian. But um, uh, let's be honest about it, we will never lose the whiff of suspicion about us. If you want to, uh, if you want to, 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 to be respectable, go, go, go and worship anonymously, perhaps at a big cathedral. I gather cathedral congregations are growing. If you want respectability, go, go uh, t- tell your friends that, um, um, that your faith is just a private matter and uh, you're quite happy with whatever they believe. If you want respectability, tell them that of course all religions lead to God and everyone's just worshipping God in the, uh, in the best way that they can. If you want respectability, don't follow Jesus. Because from the beginning of his life to the end, Jesus was despised. He said to his people, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecutely, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of, my, uh, because of me. That was his lot and that is the lot of those who follow him. The world's perspective will always be that Jesus and his followers are 
powerless and irrelevant and are to be despised and rejected. That's the way. Theophilus, says Luke. That's what he's going to That's what God's true revolution is all about. But look at the perspective of heaven now in this story. Verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. It's very significant that this revelation is given to shepherds. Matthew mentioned that um, magi, important people, were told because he had a different agenda. But Luke wants Theophilus to see that ordinary people, marginalised people, humble people were the first to hear the good news. And great good news it was. Actually the phrase good news was a term used to often to promulgate a, a military victory. Did you hear the, uh, the good news in Isaiah 52 where uh, it's to descri- it describes the arrival of God The good news in Isaiah 52 is that our God reigns. God is winning his victory. And it will bring great joy for all the people, say these angels. That's what they see. A couple of years ago I read a diary of um, uh, a dead great aunt of mine in which she described the... um, magnificent colour of the VE Day celebrations in London in 1945. She was uh, there amongst the crowds. But amazingly in this this diary, she also remembered back, as she wrote about it, to Armistice Day of 1918. My grandfather was working in Whitehall at the moment and and, uh, on the 11th of, the, uh, of November 1918, he, he'd gone up to work as usual. And as he arrived in the centre of London, he uh, re- realised that uh, no one was going to work that day. It was absolutely full of thronging crowds. And so he rushed back down to Lewisham where they lived and brought back up his little sisters. And uh, my great aunt was a little girl who was was teeming amongst that crowd and she said it was extraordinary. There was just happiness on everyone's uh, face. Everyone was overwhelmed with what had happened. She said the bombed out buildings and uh, she walked down Oxford Street and there was hardly a pane of glass in the, in the windows of Oxford Street at that time. The, the bombed out buildings were unnoticed by the crowd. She said the grief of widows and orphans was forgotten for a minute because they had heard the news of victory. They were filled with joy. 
by the hosts of heaven felt like that. On that day when this little sprite was born and laid in a manger. Yes, maybe there were, there were to be trials and difficulties now for a while. But the victory was there. The good news was that victory was won as good as completed on the day that that baby was born. This baby is described as a saviour, one who will save because he is the promised Christ, the one whom the Bible has looked forward to for, for, for since the beginning of time. More than that, in some mysterious way, say the angels, he is the Lord. Do you see that? The town of David, a saviour has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord. In some mysterious way, he is God too. And what's the sign then that God is going to give? That this extraordinary victory has happened, that has, that has made heaven erupt with delight. Here it is. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It is the epitome of how God works. It is, the, it is the ultimate expression of God's character. That this Saviour, this Christ, this God-made man should choose to be so weak, so humble, so despised to do his work. finally became expressed in God the Son on the cross. The epitome of how God works is that he chooses to pay for our sins in his own body. He chooses to win his victory through weakness. He chooses to let the devil do his very worst against him. And then the devil finds himself defeated. Because God in himself has stooped low and paid for every sin that we could ever commit and then offered us forgiveness. This is the sign, say the angels, who God really is, how he's going to save a baby in a manger. Edward Shillitoe rightly said, Other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. Thou, uh, they rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is the truly glorious God. 
two aspects of God that these angels are most excited about. One is that God will get the glory, glory to God in the highest, as people see his extraordinary work through Jesus. And the other is that men, people, will get peace. Peace on earth uh, to men, uh, peace on earth to men on whom his favour rests. Not sadly on everyone, but on everyone who, on whom God's favours rest, favour rests. On everyone who puts themselves under God's care, there will be peace. Their lives will be put in order. They will be forgiven. Glory, they say. It's going to happen. That is what God is doing today. From heaven's perspective. Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke is going to record... How heaven rejoices as the woman with the lost coin finds a coin. So does heaven rejoice when a lost person is found. As the prodigal son who was lost is found. So does heaven rejoice when a prodigal returns to God. Because there's another bit of glory, another bit of peace, another inch forward in God's revolutionary battle. And all of heaven rejoices. And then there is people's perspective. Or God's people's perspective. More accurately. First of all, there's those uh, shepherds. What do they do? Do they um, shrug it off as a dream? Do they um, uh, naively make a leap of faith? They do neither. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us uh, about. See, it may be, frankly, that you just can't believe this. You look at the world and you see just only the Caesar Augustus is in control. You see something of what, the, what Luke is saying about what heaven says about what has just happened. But frankly, you just don't believe it. Well, says Luke, listen to the shepherds. They found it a bit difficult to believe, so they went to see if the sign was there. And they found it. They looked for evidence. Christianity is not at all against evidence. In fact, I find that 99% of people who are not Christians today haven't investigated Christianity and found it wanting. They've just not bothered to investigate it. And they begin all their dismissals of Christianity with, of course, of course miracles don't happen, of course God can't become man. But when I'm talking to them, because I'm a provocative type, I often like to ask, what evidence do you have of that? 
they frankly have never examined the evidence. They just dress up their presuppositions with, as if they were self-evident facts, of course. I've discovered actually that the average atheistic professor is more high-handedly dismissive with evidence than those shepherds were. No, if you're, if you're wondering whether this could be true, says Luke to Theophilus, find out. I've carefully investigated all this. Find out whether it rings true. Or uh, Luke um, particularly emphasises Mary as well in verse 19. Mary treasured up, stored up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She thought carefully, she tried to work out, could this be true? Does this fit together? Does this make sense? She, uh, as the years went by, accumulated more and more evidence as she stored it up and she pondered. Christianity makes sense. Christianity is on firm foundations. There is no amount of careful thinking that we need uh, to be anxious about as Christians. Look at the evidence. Ponder. Think. Come along to a just looking group. Don't think that it is simply a blind leap of faith. The shepherds didn't want to do it. Mary didn't want to do it. Luke doesn't expect anyone to do it. But take it seriously. Because Luke is saying something absolutely extraordinary. He is saying behind the history that you see written about in the history books, behind the Caesar Augustuses of this world, there is Jesus and his followers. And down through history, they have had more influence, they have won more victories than Augustus ever could. They have seen people changed so that they have peace with God. They have seen a God displayed to this world in all his glory on the cross. And that's the only revolution that really matters. It's arrived, says Luke. Think about it. Let's pray. For some of, some of us here, we, we need to spend a moment thinking about whether we're prepared to follow a saviour who was in a manger and on a cross.
What's the cost for you? Perhaps for some of us we, we just haven't fitted it together yet. We need to think some more. Let's just before God commit ourselves to investigate, to ponder. <laughs>